Okay. This was written by two people. Russell Bates was one of them. Uh, Mr. Bates had tried to get an episode into TOS more than once, actually, and failed at it. Although one of his story ideas would end up going on to be a part of New Voyages 2, uh, The Patient Parasites, if you have to remember that one. He was also someone who was taken under the wing of a, well, a very distinguished gentleman I like to call... The guy actually responsible for Star Trek being amazing. I'm being a little facetious. Gene Kuhn. Gene Kuhn. Now, as I've talked about during the TOS ruminations, a lot of people were responsible for Trek being Trek. But Kuhn, I would say, is probably the most responsible, personally, for what we have, for what Trek is, the the actual practical result we got. Anyways, Kuhn took him under his wing, guided him, helped him. And then, uh, when TAS was in production... I'm not sure of the timeline, but near as I can tell, this was somewhere around season one-ish, when they were still in production of it, and were thinking about a season two and were pulling in scripts. Miss <sighs> Fontana called out to Kuhn and said, hey, you want to come do an episode? And Kuhn said, no. <laughs> but there's this kid I know, Mr. Bates. You should get a hold of him. So she did. And Bates was then, and this is what led to, you know, the the... Uh, some of the other stuff where it's like, okay, maybe we should work on this, maybe we should work on that. Now, I'm not sure the exact timeline, but it is kind of important because Gene Kuhn died in July of 73. This episode came out in 74 for a little bit of perspective on that. So he died sometime just before slash during the production of this episode and the production of season two in general. (sighs) Obviously that sucks. But the reason I bring it up is because Mr. Bates himself flat out stated that he made this episode in honor of Mr. Kuhn and was trying you know, to, to, to venerate the man's memory as a consequence. But let's move on from horribleness and let's talk about something else. Because one of the things that was mentioned was, you know, your last script just didn't quite work. Maybe we should pair you up with someone who already has experience with animation. And then the two of you can work together to hammer this out and put it together. So they paired him up with someone named David Wise. Now there's a much better chance you've heard of that name. But in the off chance you haven't, David Wise did work on a couple of little-known shows such as Transformers, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Rescue Rangers, and Batman the Animated Series. Yeah. <laughs> He's He's got some weight behind him, at least for the era, and is at least partially responsible for what I often refer to as the animation uh, renaissance, which Batman the Animated Series was absolutely one of the members thereof. So, that's cool. So they got them together. They started working it out. They did a lot of things. What's funny is there's a lot of behind the machine, a lot of behind the scenes material for this particular episode because most, both Mr. Wise and Mr. Bates have talked extensively about the creative process for this one. However, that's all interviews and even some of their own interviews disagree with some of their other interviews they've given later because it's all from memory and I mean, even speaking as someone who has an excellent memory, my own memory is not perfect. You know, I, I probably couldn't exactly tell you how many roads it is, how many blocks it is to go from one of my apartments to the other when I was five. That would take some effort. 
I might get close, but you get my point. Nevertheless, what we did hear from both is something unusual for TAS. A very small amount of external interference from Roddenberry. There was one big thing. Like, I, I talk about this because many of the writers so far have spoken about how aggravating it was dealing with the constant Roddenberry rewrites. And I myself have posited my theory, which at this point I think might as well just be fact. I, I cannot believe it's anything other than fact, based on all the overwhelming evidence, that this was proto-TNG. That this was this was a direct lead in to all of the problems of and the design mentality behind TNG season one. But here's the funny thing: one of the things he insisted on absolutely was a godlike alien. What is with Roddenberry and godlike aliens? I really would like to know. I mean, I can't because he's dead, so I can't. Hang on, hang on. Let me pull Frostmourne out here. Good. Hey, Gene. Um, what's with the godlike aliens? Oh, you're secretly... Oh, that makes so much sense. Okay, okay, back into the ground. No, 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 stay down. No apocalypse, no apocalypse. All right. So, they hit a, a force field at warp. <laughs> What's funny is the episode acknowledges how big of a deal that is. It's, you know, the, the inertial dampers were actually doing their job, thankfully. And they're like, okay, how do we deal with this? And what immediately happens after this is the GM starts cheating. This is absolutely typical threat of the week. Hi, I have a big ship, and I can just prevent you from going to warp, and I can prevent you from shooting, and I can prevent you from moving, and, and I can just shoot you and destroy you. There's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> typical, straight-up typical threat of the week. My God. But then, uh, Mr. Walking Bear, why that Kasulu suddenly shows up and is like, wait a minute, is that Kukulkan? No, it's Kuklakan. Or is it Kukl... Most of the voice acting was done such that certain people were present for this, and the writers were actually present for the voice acting recording sessions of this episode to help them with both pronunciations and some of the enunciations, or that is to say, the nuances that needed to happen with regards to the episode and the dialogue therein. Okay, cool. But a couple of people weren't present for that, and one of them was William Shatner, who was way over there across the country doing his line separately. So he didn't get the memo. So he constantly and consistently calls it Kuklakan because that's what was in his head. I'd make fun, but I can't because I actually have the exact same problem. Once the pronunciation is in my head, it actually takes very serious and very substantial effort to get it out. Even if I hear someone saying it somewhat uh, elsewise, and I've done this several times, as has been pointed out by several of my lovely and wonderful detractors on the YouTube comments. It's not something I do on purpose, to be honest. It's just I look at the word and it's like, oh, that's how that's pronounced. And then it takes work to get it some other way. It doesn't work that way if I hear it before I see it, but you know how that works. That's pretty rare. Anyways, Kukulkan, he's a nice dude. He's cool. He's cool. He shows up and he says, I'm going gonna, uh, gonna to kill you all. Oh, wait, one of you remembers me. Because one of you remembers me, I'll, I'll allow you to take a test. But if you fail the test, I'll kill you all. Nice guy. Nice guy. Very Mayan. <clears throat> so then they go down. Oh, by the way, by the way, is this the sixth godlike alien that's been a part of Earth history now? In fact, I don't know the exact number, but I do know that this is at least two just in this show, just in the animated series. What the heck is it with Earth? I've already made this joke. At this point, I don't even know what to add to it. Apparently, they're really, apparently Q, John Delancey Q, was just sitting there with a big old sign saying, hey, Check it out. Anyone want some uh, some free humans to check out? 
take it out. You know, free worshippers, free free alterations to the timeline. Just just hang out here. It's it's Earth. It's the happening vacation spot. Apparently, I know that we all make fun of humans are special, but this is ridiculous. Clearly, the reason why humans are so special in Trek is because of the fact that we had six or however many godlike aliens who all influenced us in our past. Maybe they all killed each other? That's what happened? I don't freaking know. Whatever. Now, this episode is is not one I'm fond of, but I do want to give credit where credit is due. They go... Well, actually, what they do is they go into the ship, and then they get the Matrix beamed into their brains, as we find out later. And they're in this massive city. Those shots are actually quite well done for the time. Now, I wouldn't call those well done generally, and I don't think they've aged that well. But when compared alongside most of the animation, and wrong word, most of the artwork of the series in general, this is pretty high, high quality. Funny thing, I did a little looking into that, because I was curious. It turns out that this episode not only went over budget, this is not the first episode to go over budget, but this is the first season two episode to go over budget. Keep in mind, they were keeping budget low by some of the, the infrastructure they already had. Obviously, that doesn't apply here because it's so much new stuff, so that makes sense. But they also outsourced some of their stuff in order to fulfill a contract obligation to the, one of their Japanese studios. And they did most of those stills and uh, the matte painting style stuff, the artwork. Which, yeah, whether it's better or worse, it is distinctly different. And I find that to be interesting, given the, the visual style of what they were going for for this one. Anyways, so <clears throat> they try to figure things out. And what's funny is here I have a note, my notes right here, that says they actually use legitimate sound sound design, which is rare for this show. What I mean by that is most of the effects are just effects that they place over, and then they have someone talking, and then they have effect, and then they have music, and that's it. There's no sound design. They don't do any panning. They don't try to make it sound echoey or distant or whatever. There are a couple of exceptions. They did a little bit of this in, um, not BAM, the underwater one. I can't think of the name of it. And there's been a couple of times, literally two, where they've done a little bit of sound design. But this one was actually noticeable because there's this nice bit, and I will give credit because this is harder to do then than it is now, where you can hear Kirk getting more distant and more echoey as the camera's panning away from him, which is exactly how it should sound. That kind of audio design is the stuff that I have studied for most of my life and actually work on in you know, some of the stuff I work on. And it's it's fascinating to look at because you're not supposed to notice it. That's the whole point, right? It's supposed to just sound natural. But that takes work and effort and time, and I wanted to give credence for it. Especially since immediately after they get out of the Matrix, Kirk and McCoy's sound design is terrible. It sounds like the audio files they got were just wrong, or maybe they were sent badly, or maybe they were uh, cranked up the volume and they shouldn't have, or maybe they were too quiet, but they're peaking constantly. I have no idea what they did wrong there, but it's very noticeable and very aggravating. This then leads to him being like, Hate! You hate me! You dared fight back when I was killing you! Therefore you must hate me! <sighs> okay, I'm, I'm not even going to respond to that one. And then he shows off his collection. What? And then he shows off that each one of these is in a matrix. Uh, you know, a perfect mental simulation of their, their home habitat, their home environment. Okay, that's... that's. Um, I mean, if, if someone wanted that, you know, no judgment. I, I've said before that I bet if people could willingly join the Borg, and the Borg weren't horrible about it, that there would be people who would willingly join the Borg... I bet you money there are plenty of people who would willingly jump into the Matrix if the opportunity was presented. No, really. And again, no judgment. 
Not for me, but I'm sure there are people who choose that. The catch is he's kidnapping people and races in order to shove them into the Matrix, which doesn't... That's not quite the same. That's the Borg problem all over again, isn't it? That's just kidnapping or conquest or whatever else you want to call it. Then, he mentions that he's really, really lonely. Oh, all is forgiven. We all know that being stuck at home alone is the perfect reason and explanation for reaching out and enslaving others. So, McCoy's off, Kirk's off, big fight. And then Spock figures out how to break out of the field, and Kukulkan's like, I'm gonna, oh, screw me, Kukulkan, oh god, now I'm screwing it up. Kukulkan, not Kukulkan, is like, I'm gonna kill you now. And then, and then fight. You know, it's an action sequence. But then they win. Humans are evil and violent. They need the ways, but it's okay. We were kids, but now we're grown up. We're out of our adolescence. Star Trek message, Star Trek message. Humans are good, and he heads out to meet up with Apollo and get some beers. The end. Before I chop off, this episode won an Emmy. Star Trek has been nominated for Emmys before. I'm pretty sure I pointed out a few times over in TOS. This is the first time Trek has ever won an Emmy. It was a daytime Emmy for Best Children's Show. Yep. Huh. Let me talk about that for a second. So first of all, it beat out uh, Captain Kangaroo and Pink Panther, which... I'm going to be as blunt as I can, not exactly, you know, a, a big competition. But then again, Trek was beaten by, you know, worse things too, so that's, that's just whatever. But let's talk about the nomination process. Now, I'm actually not sure if this is still how this works, but back in the day, you would submit an episode and some notes and some behind the scenes and say, here, this is what should be considered for, uh, you know, for, for the win. This, this is what is being nominated for it. And so they would look at that one episode and decide if the whole show deserves that Emmy for that episode. This was the episode that was nominated, and that is specifically why I mention it, because actually the animated series won the Emmy, but this episode is the actual reason for that. Best children's show. This episode. I suppose my tone gets across my perspective on that, but without bias, what's yours? Do you think this is deserving of the title? Do you think this is deserving of that hallmark in history? Do you think Emmys are worth a damn? Because I don't, if I'm being completely blunt. They're a little more worthwhile than, say, Academy Awards, which are total garbage. But at least, you know, there's something behind the Emmy process. But what is this? This? Really? Now, it's funny. As I've been looking at the behind the scenes, I have... Not much behind-the-scenes material for the animated series. Just a few things. Mostly scattered informations and one book and a lot of interviews that I have, as well as the behind-the-scenes on the actual uh, the DVD. So, you know, that that's what I've had access to. But I mention this because one of the consistent things that has been showcased is there's some other site, which I can't even think of the name of, that years and years ago did a review series of the whole series and has been rating them. Now, I've been completely ignoring those ratings up until this one, because I was jotting down my notes about the Emmy thing, and I noticed that the review site rated this a 1 out of 5, and I'm like, is that that bad? No, it's not. But it's not that good either. <sighs> one more. One more. <sighs> 